I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. So open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. And we are going to begin by tackling a hard and potentially controversial issue, as usual, it seems. Um, not on purpose, though, it's just that the Bible's full of controversial issues. And um, in doing this, we're going to learn some really good Bible study habits, because I'm going to take this particular passage and then draw some application from it on how we approach difficult passages or controversial issues in general. So hopefully it'll help you just in your own home Bible study time. Um, I know that using using the methods I'm going to tell you tonight, I uh, and they're very simple methods, I was able to deal with people coming to my door of different religious persuasions, you know, knock, 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 come join our group kind of thing. Um, having never heard the arguments they would give before, where they would take me to a verse that I wasn't familiar with, and then they quote it, and then I'm like, wait a minute. And then I did this, this technique, and was able to show where they were wrong, even though I hadn't studied the passage before. And so uh, so there you go, there's my, I'm setting it up. But I think that it's, it's, it's that effective, and it's so simple. So here we are, 1 Peter 4, 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead. That, as in, this is the reason, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. There are three options that I see that are generally presented for how to interpret this verse. That this gospel being preached to those who are dead is a reference to those who are now dead, but the gospel was preached to them while they were alive. This seems to be fitting the grammar. The gospel was preached also to those who are dead. It was preached, past tense, to those who are dead, present tense. Meaning that the the preaching may have happened before they they had died. Um, And the context fits this. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11 says this. Of this salvation, check this out, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what? Or in what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The main point I'm drawing from 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 is this, that it was the spirit of Christ in these Old Testament saints. And so we have the, the gospel being preached to those who are dead, meaning there was a preaching ahead of time to those who were dead is already in the context of the scriptures, of this particular book. And it sets the context for Peter, 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20. We did this last week, or was it two weeks ago now? It says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, remember this, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So this um, this this preaching to those who are were dead. This would fit if you follow the interpretation of First Peter three that says, "Oh, that was the um, that was simply Noah preaching by the Spirit of Christ to the generation that existed before the before the flood, and then died in the flood." That's also a possibility. Um, it's not totally unreasonable. So there's two reasonable interpretations of that that verse, which we dealt with. Right? You could preach to those who are now dead; they were pre-flood people. Then preach to fallen angels. We talked about that as well. And then an unreasonable interpretation of that passage, which is that you can get saved after you die, which is certainly, we talked about this two weeks ago, so I won't get back into that. But we have a similar situation here. We have two reasonable, and I think one unreasonable interpretation. So the first one is simply that First Peter chapter 4, verse 6 is people who are dead now 
had the gospel preached to them when they were alive. And that it was the spirit of Christ preaching through the prophets and through the different people. Um, number two, the second possible interpretation is that it was preached to those who are spiritually dead, that they might become saved and be rejected by men and then received by God. And that that fits the context that we're spiritually dead outside of Christ, apart from Christ. So in the sight of the world, you're judged according to men in the flesh. Oh, you've lost everything for your faith in Christ. What have you gained because of your faith? Look at your life now and you're being persecuted and attacked and killed for your faith. And they could turn and say, no, I've gained it all. I've gained, as we said, better is one day in your courts, Lord, better to be a, a doorkeeper in the, in the, in the house of the Lord. Um, so they'd say, no, I gained it all. Like Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will keep it for eternal life. So this, interestingly, option one is preach to those who are now dead, but preached while they were alive. Two is preach to those who are spiritually dead so that they might become saved even though they'd be rejected by men. Interestingly, both these interpretations are not um, exclusive of each other. It could be both. <laughs> I mean, you could take it both ways at the same time and you'd be fine. So this is one of those verses where I don't feel like you have to be like pigeonhole it into this little category because both of those are legitimate and biblical interpretations. But the third option is not. It is that they preached to those who died and they later, after death, heard the gospel from this holding place. And after they died, their souls heard the gospel that they might be saved after death. This is the most radical and it's not supported by the rest of the Bible. And that's the number one reason not to take that interpretation. It's just not supported. We talked about that last week. But this is actually a really good example. That's why I want to take a little slight little detour. This is a good example of bad Bible study techniques. When you read a verse like this, the gospel was preached to those who were dead. Boom, you can get saved after you die. And I just take this radical doctrine and I kind of like shove it into the passage. But, that's, but it, it's just not what the passage clearly teaches. This is the difference between what's called eisegesis and what's called exegesis. And it's Jesus, not J-E-S-U-S, but G-E-S-I-S, -S, eisegesis and exegesis. And basically, these are different, two different ways of studying anything. Exegesis is the idea that comes from ex or out of, like exit, right? Out of, I'm going to go into the passage and I'm going to pull out of it whatever it already says. I just want to let it speak. Let it, let it tell me whatever it's going to tell me. That's exegesis. So that's how I open my Bible and I want to, that's a good study technique. I just want to learn what it says. Eisegesis is where I open the Bible and I have my preconceived ideas and I try to shove them into the pages of the scripture. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to find a verse to tell me what I want it to tell me. And I'm going to pull it right out of context and twist it to mean whatever I want it to mean. That's exactly what, for instance, Mormons do. When they talk about three heavens, I'll give you an example of this. Step one, the Mormon missionary comes to your door. Hello. And the issue of heaven comes up and the heavens come up and they say, well, you know, there's three heavens according to the Bible. And you go, wait, what? What? There's three heavens according to the Bible. And they go, yes. You see, there is the telestial heaven. That's the lowest level of heaven. There's the terrestrial heaven. That's the second one up. And then there's the highest level of heaven, which only good Mormons who were married in the Mormon church can be part of. And that's the celestial heaven. That is the highest one up. And so you've got these three levels of heaven. Then, after having put this doctrine into your mind, they will take you to 2 Corinthians 12, 2, which says this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I don't know, God knows, such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And you go, <gasps> Mormonism must be true, right? And so... 
But actually what's happened here is called eisegesis, right? I start by teaching you my doctrine. Then I take you to a passage that references two of the words I happen to use in my doctrine. Even though this passage doesn't teach my doctrine, it just says some of those words. And then so now I eisegesis, shove my doctrine in between the pages of the scriptures to, and say that this is what it means. But this is actually wrong. Um, the Bible does talk about different heavens. We use the word heaven in the plural with an S at the end of it. And it talks about the birds fly in the midst of heaven. Well, this is certainly not an eternal location where people go. It talks about how the sun and the moon and the stars are in the midst of the heavens. That's obviously not an eternal location. Then it talks about how God's throne and we can go and be caught up to be with God, right, in heaven. That would be the third heaven. And so there's still only one location for the, for the saved to go when they die to be with the Lord. That would be a correct interpretation of scripture, looking at it in context. But the Mormon here is, has now, I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I think that they're just repeating what they've been told. But it's a big example of eisegesis or basically forcing your meaning into the text. You start with your bad theology. You quote a verse that doesn't teach what you think it teaches. And then you conclude that you're right. Well, here's what we need to do. When you're approached with this type of thing, you have to, number one, check the immediate context. Just check the immediate context. For instance, in the passage where Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, does he then go on to describe how the different three levels of heaven are each different eternal locations where different levels of righteousness will get you into the higher level? Certainly not. There's nothing like this in the text. That's all completely imported from the Mormon theology. So you check the immediate context. The next thing you do is you compare relevant scriptures. So you go to the other verses that talk about heaven or heavens plural and you see, well, I'm going to do a word search. I could go to blueletterbible.org and I could do a search for the word heaven or heavens and see all the times it comes up in the Bible. That's called a concordance. It is one of the most useful Bible study tools you have next to a dictionary, which I highly recommend keeping with you or in your phone. And I look up words all the time in the dictionary. Um, it's, it's very wise <laughs> to do so. I mean, it's just, just, just be like, I don't know exactly what that means and look it up. It's no big deal. Um, so you go to the, 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 uh, the relevant scriptures and you look up and you see how heavens means this in the scriptures. And then you use the clear teachings of the Bible to help you on the unclear ones. You use the clear teachings to help you with the unclear passages. So the Bible clearly teaches that um, Jesus is the only way, for instance. So then I would not take some vague passage that has some reference to someone having been a good person. And then conclude that that guy got saved without Jesus. That would just be bad Bible study techniques. So number one, you check the immediate context. Number two, you check relevant scriptures. Number three, you check clear teachings to inform you of unclear ones. And I'll tell you what, if you just do number one, it'll clear up most of the issues for you. When you have Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, anybody you meet along the street or at the bookstore or wherever you happen to be, and they quote a verse to tell you this means such and such, and you're like, wait a minute, that does not sound right. All you need to do is say, where is that? Open it up and just patiently take your time. Just read the verses before it, read the verse, read the verses after it, maybe read it again, and you will find it becomes clear to you. It becomes clear to you more often than not because God didn't write his word to confuse us. So 1 Peter 3.18, I think, supports this. It says, um, just before we get to this verse here in 1 Peter 4, it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, speaking of Christ. Then it talks about the gospel being preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. 
So it seems that they were alive and then they were killed by men, judged by men according to the flesh, by persecution, but they'll live forever. And so the gospel was preached to them, though they might lose this life, they would gain an eternal life. And that's the main point. That's the main point. This reminds me of the Hall of Faith people I read about in Hebrews, right? Where they, they just gave up this world. They gave up this life. They gave up their reputation. They gave up their possessions. They gave up their physical well-being and safety that they might have God on their side. That they might walk with him and inherit an eternal home. And this fits with the theme of 1 Peter, which is pilgrimage. The idea that I'm just a pilgrim passing through, that I'm just temporarily on this world. And I basically want to focus on having an impact on earth that will last in heaven. And that's my main goal. That's my main goal here. So, let's not forget to apply it. as Because sometimes we approach these controversial verses and we go, hmm, that's interesting. And then we just walk away. But God wants us to live it in our lives. So I think the application of 1 Peter 4, 6 would be to decide which kingdom you're about and don't even try to get along with the world. This is huge for us in America, where we're like more scared of offending people than we are of anything else. It's funny because I've actually seen people get offended because they thought somebody might be offended. Do you know what I mean? You say something and someone goes, well, you know, somebody might be offended by that. Somebody, somebody could be offended by that. And so, you know what? I'm really bothered by that because somebody might be offended by that. And you're like, well, are you offended by that? And we're like, uh, no, but, but somebody could be offended by, oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, because we had this weird sort of moral value of not offending anybody, except for those who have, who hold Christian standards. We can offend them all day long. Um, and so it's just kind of this strange thing. So we have to decide as Christians, you know what? If the world doesn't understand me after I carefully try to live out my Christian life in love and stand for righteousness... I'm not going to worry about it. It's no, what is it? No skin off my nose or no sweat off my brow or something that's not happening to me, right? I don't have to worry about it. (laughs) I can't remember the phrase, but it just doesn't matter. I do not expect to get along in this world. Jesus told me very clearly it would not work. So don't worry about it. Don't even, he goes, look what they did to me. What are they going to do to you? So you just position your heart to say, Lord, I will be judged according to men in the flesh but I will be alive according to God in the spirit. And I'm not going to worry about it. So we just say, I'm going to do God's will and I'm going to serve. And if I suffer, I'll try to do it with the attitude that Jesus had. Verse seven says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. It says here, this is actually more about final states than it is about the cessation of all activity. Let me, let me explain. When he says, is the end, of, the end of all things is at hand, is he saying like, hey guys, any minute now, the second coming is going to happen, and Jesus returns, and then like everything stops. But rather, it's a very different, this word, end of all things, it's the same word used to describe when a person is fully grown. So if I use this word end, and I had a corpse here, and I had a 21-year-old boy or man here, and I said, which one of these is at an end? I would actually not point to the corpse. I'd point to the young man because he's fully grown. He's, he's approached his final condition, his, his fullness of state. But so it doesn't speak of the end of all things like death. So in other words, Peter's not saying um, final judgment's coming and everything stops. But rather, he's saying in like, you might use the word dispensations here. But you're, you're, we're saying here that the, the, the time in the garden happened, the time 
before the flood that happened, the time when God was working in the nations and then God was working in Israel and now God is working in the Gentile world. And so soon the time is coming when heaven will meet earth and we will be eternally in the presence of God, fully, fully grown, so to speak. That's very soon coming. So it's not about the annihilation of everything. That would be a different Greek word altogether. Altogether. In fact, Christians, they, we talk about Armageddon or something. And I'm like, we're, no one's excited about the first like 19 chapters of Revelation. Right? <laughs> we're just excited about what happens after that. You know, that's the, the, last, the last three. Are there, that's the exciting part. That's what we're looking forward to. So, but this brings up an issue. Was Jesus supposed to show up right away? Was, were the end of, was the final state supposed to be like that, like right away? And I think actually this comes, um, there's sort of two sides to this issue. As a Christian, I want to live in expectation of Christ's coming. Yes, always. But if you honestly expect it to happen at every moment, you're going to be very disappointed very consistently until it finally happens and then you'll be very happy. So what did Jesus actually expect? Well, turn with me to Matthew 24 and let's look at what he said about his own coming. Matthew 24. So the question is, was Jesus supposed to come right away? Was he supposed to show, is he 2,000 years late to the party? I don't think so. Look at what he said in Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. And now he's going to speak about his second coming. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, the first thing that he says is, Don't be tricked. A lot of fakers are going to show up and pretend to be me. Now, if Jesus was going to come back in the next like six months or year, exactly how many fakers can you fit into that little period of time? Right? He's like, a lot of people are going to come pretending to be me. Don't be deceived. Then he goes on, verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. I mean, how long does Jesus have to leave from his first coming to his second for there to be wars and rumors of wars? I mean, wars aren't over in a day. And rumors of wars. So in other words, there's going to be a protracted period of time between the first and second coming. Then he continues, he says, see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet people so often read this passage and then teach that the end is coming wars and rumors of wars the end must be near jesus actually said the opposite he's like when you hear of wars and rumors of wars don't worry about it doesn't mean anything really well that's what he said <laughs> but so often this is taught by, by those who were like, hey, get ready, he's coming. And I'm excited about the coming of Jesus. But I don't want to create an unbiblical standard for which we should be looking at the clouds, so to speak, metaphorically. Verse 7, he says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. This is just the, this is just the beginning of it, guys. So I do think that an increase in earthquakes could speak of the second coming of Christ, and it could also just be like, yeah, it's just earthquakes. <laughs> I don't know. They're, oh, there's this war going on. World War III's coming. And you're like, well, maybe there'll be a World War Seven by the time Jesus comes back. Or maybe he'll come back tomorrow. I don't know. So I must live my life as though he could come back today, or he could come back in my great-grandchildren's time. And so I want to have both a spiritual and a financial inheritance for them <laughs> so that I can be wise in this world and in this time. Since the resurrection, 
We are only waiting on the return of Christ. That's absolutely true. That's what we're waiting on as Christians. I'm waiting on Jesus to come back. It could happen at any time. He's long-suffering because, just think of this. In the past 2,000 years, how much bigger has the population of heaven become? Because God is so patient. And certainly I'm part of that population. Because he waited on me. So I'm very grateful for that. So I look at the, at the coming of Christ as an imminent thing, but not an immediate thing. Imminent, here's a great dictionary term for imminent. Imminent means hanging threateningly over one's head. As opposed to the world, the second coming is like a threat. To us, it's like a promise. Um, but immediate means it's going to happen right now. Right now. And so I, I, I see imminent as it's guaranteed and it's, it's just hanging there waiting to fall. Um, and immediate is something that Jesus didn't give us. So then, after telling us the begin of all thing, the, the end of all things is at hand, how we're coming to that final place, we're, we're, we're storing up treasures in heaven, and then that kingdom is coming, as we keep praying, God, you let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth. It's going to happen. So then begins in Peter a list of instructions on how we should respond to the passing nature of the worldly system and the soon coming, the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. The first on that list is here in verse 7. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I have never in my life told someone to be serious in their prayers. But the Lord saw fit in the limited space that's in the scriptures to make sure that this was put in, to be serious in our prayers. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told to pray in the spirit, pray always in the spirit, that I should be praying with this connection to God. Um, We're told to pray fervently, this intensity, this this fervency in our prayers. We're told to pray always. I'm to, I'm to pray all the time. In fact, pray without ceasing even. And I'm told to pray in everything. And I'm told to pray with thankfulness. And I've got all these instructions about prayer. But here, I'm told to be serious in my prayers. And that word serious, it actually means sober-minded. Now, in verse 3, just a few verses ago, and a week ago, we talked about... Um, not being drunk, right? God spoke really harshly against drunkenness, not drinking in general, but drunkenness specifically, very harshly against it. Here, we're told to pray with a sober mind. Now, that doesn't just mean don't pray when you're drunk. Like that's, It's more to it than that. It's actually saying um, have a clear mind and a clear thought process and be rational while you're praying. I think that's really interesting. This makes me wonder if I should really be praying when I'm super sleepy. You ever pray yourself to sleep? And Lord, I pray that the the bunnies and stuff. Ah, you know, you're gone. Um, You know, I'm not sure of the, the, I mean, it's nice, but I'm not sure of the impact of such prayer. (laughs) I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just not sure of the impact. It also seems to be an attack against repetitious, excuse me, vainly repetitious prayers, specifically vain prayers. Um, Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He said, in fact, if you turn there, please, I'll, I'll read Matthew 6, 7, and then you can meet up with me, Matthew 6, 8. It says, and when you pray, do not use vain or empty repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. That's Matthew 6, 7. Don't use vain or empty repetitions as the heathen do, and then here's what they think. They think that just by saying these words over and over again, that it means they'll be heard. And Jesus totally rebukes this. This is, I think, a case against adopting pagan practices in general. 
in general. Not maybe every single thing. I mean, pagans wear clothes. I think that's a good practice for us to also have. You know, they eat food. I think it's also a good practice to enjoy. But I do not want to worship God in pagan methods. And I mention this because there was, oh gosh, maybe maybe eight or nine years ago, at least that, that's when it came to my attention, maybe not even that long, um, a movement within the church locally to take on practices adopted and learned from Buddhists or Hindus or various monks and various other Eastern cultures and religions and to bring them into the Christian's personal devotional walk with God. They had conferences about it. I know a church that had almost a split. Actually, they really did have a split over this particular issue, which is very tragic and unfortunate. Um, You may have heard the term spiritual formation. Um, Spiritual formation is one of the terms that this came under. Now, spiritual formation has a lot of good stuff. But this was also in there in some cases. So don't be afraid if you hear the term spiritual formation. It may not be bad. But you know, pay attention to the content that comes along with it. Um, I think that we should not think that it is spiritual when we look at how a Buddhist monk chants and meditates and then think that we should copy this in our prayer closet as Christians. Why? Because the Buddhist monk is not actually connecting with God. They're just very good at convincing themselves they're spiritual when they're not. So what am I really learning to do? I'm learning to fake it. I'm learning to fake it. This is why so many of the tribal religions involve drugs in their worship practices. But yet I've talked to people who think that Christians should do the same thing. And I just think Christians should not learn from pagans how to worship God. This is foolishness. Certainly, you know, I don't need to adopt pagan practices like, okay, you can go there and look at the mountain and then think about the mountain until you forget that you're here and then you forget to even think about anything and then you're just meditating on nothing. But I'm going to do what the Bible says and actually think about things when I meditate because that's what scripture tells me to do. (laughs) And I'm going to follow God and not follow pagan practices in this. One of the things I don't want to follow is vain repetitions because I think that that's not praying sober mindedly or clear mindedly. When I'm just saying the thing and I'm like, what did I even say? I mean, you ever, you ever read? I know you have. You read like a whole chapter of the Bible or, or any book for that matter. And at the end of the chapter, you're like, what, what happened in that? Cha- I have no idea what happened in that chapter. And so you go back and read it again. And then you go back and read it again. And that's when you realize it's time to go to bed. <laughs> you know, it's just like, how many times am I going to do this? Just go to sleep. But I want to have a clear mind in prayer as well. I don't want to just pray things. I've caught myself praying something and I'm just like, and I'm like, that was really dumb. I'm sorry, Lord. I don't know why I said that. You know, and, and I realize I'm not praying sober-mindedly. God wants me to love him with all my mind. Now, I don't have to be super intelligent to do this. He didn't say, love, love me with all of Einstein's brain. He's love me with your mind. Just your mind, wherever you're at. Love, love him with that. So I want to avoid vain repetitions. Now, I can make my own repetitions, and I, and I do. I have certain things I tend to pray for very regularly. That's fine. Just make sure they're not vain, not pointless, not empty, not just words that I say, but words that I mean. That's the point. Jesus then goes on in Matthew 6, verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. I mean, think of how annoying it would be if like I went up to you and said, hey, can I get a cup of coffee? 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 I'm going to say it 50 times and that way you'll really want to get me one. And you're like, no, now I want to throw it in your face because you're annoying. You know, like God is not impressed by our, our just constant rep- repetitions. 
what he is impressed by is our heartfelt continued prayers. But uh, the point which the heart and the mind are not there, our mouths should stop moving. <laughs> so um, he goes on, he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And then what does he give us? A prayer that is often used vainly and repetitiously, but a prayer that is also often used intently and meaningfully. We shouldn't say, oh, don't pray the Lord's Prayer because that's vain repetition. No, vain repetition is vain repetition. But meaningful repetition is meaningful repetition. And what we're to avoid is the vanity. So he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So now he knows he says, in this manner, therefore pray. He's not actually asking us, I think, to repeat this prayer word for word, but rather to follow a pattern that we're learning from this type of prayer. Jesus is teaching them to pray. So he starts with the holiness of God. Our Father, hallowed be your name. And I think that prayer involves worship because it approaches a holy and loving creator. Sober-minded prayer is prayer where you're like, I know that there is a holy God in heaven that I am approaching when I pray. And you're in awe of the fact that God is awesome and holy. And he deserves to be glorified. And so maybe I shouldn't pray with a certain posture of my heart that acts like I'm just calling my my buddy. Yo, bro. What's up? Yo, like, give me a parking spot. You know? Now, you can pray for parking spots. But the point is we're approaching a holy God. He is holy. And we should approach him as though he's holy. But notice he's also our father in heaven. And so he's my father. He's not just this holy, like distant, burning bright, but rather he's right here with me, drawn close to me, drawn near to me. He's my father because I'm in Christ and I am now a child of God in him. And so I approach up my father. And then I pray for what? His kingdom and his will to be done. Prayer is not primarily a way of accomplishing my will, but a way of seeing God's will done in my life and those around me. That prayer is less about me getting what I want and God getting what he wants in me. And so... This is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. But so many times we come sort of drunk-mindedly to prayer thinking, God, oh, you're awesome, Lord, my will be done, my kingdom come. Lord, make me, make me rich, make me wealthy, make me healthy, make me strong, make me wise, make me, 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 mine, 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 mine. And we're just suddenly all about me, right? But prayer that is sober-minded would say, God, it's about you, not me. I want your will to be done. Now, I've heard people knock the idea of saying, Lord, you know, I pray for healing, but let your will be done. Now, I get it if you're praying that because you really don't think God can heal. And that's, that's a bummer that you feel God can't heal. That's an issue. But Lord, I do pray for healing, but, but I also pray all the time, Lord, but let your will be done. If you're going to knock that, then like, leave me alone. Like, don't talk to me about prayer because the heart and attitude of let your will be done, Lord, I'm echoing Jesus here. Who, when he was going to the cross, was like, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, let your will be done, not mine. And he exampled this. Let your will be done. Let your will be done. Because prayer, right prayer, involves a heart of submission to God. Where I go, Lord, I'm submitted to your will. I'm submitted to your plan. I want what you want. I'm not going to ask you for things that you don't want to give me. In fact, if I ask you for something you don't want, please, oh please, don't answer that. Don't give me what you don't want me to have. Because that's the worst. Remember Hezekiah, who asked for the extra time and how that went, if you know the story. <laughs> Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. 
So yeah, um, God's kingdom and will being done. And in First John five fourteen, it says, "We know that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us." That not only do we agree in prayer, but it also needs to be according to God's will. Um, I can't force my will upon God in prayer. And those who approach prayer like they can sort of overpower God with their will, like that's what God wants, that is not a Christian value. Um, a Christian value is, Lord, overpower your, your will into my life, not the other way around. Um, our daily bread. It says, give us today our daily bread. I think that the point here in prayer is that you're asking not just for whatever you want, but you're asking for what you need. I need food. I need my daily bread and whatever that happens to be. I need, I need to get to work today. Lord, I, I need to get this. These are just the things that I need, the necessities of life. You know, the bare necessities. Simple, bare necessities. Those bare necessities of life. I love that song. <laughs> I think that we need to uh, just be mindful of that, of, of not, uh, although we, we, we see the king, and I want to ask for grand things for his will and his glory in my life. But when it comes to my wants, I, I want to keep my prayers focused on what I need and not become materialistic. Not where I'm, I'm using God as a means to an end, but rather God is the end. He's the end. So pl- prayer is not a place for greed. It's a, it's a place for need. I think that's how I put it. Prayer is a, a, not a place for greed, but a place for need. And Lord, I need this. And, um, and you know what I need. And so I pray for it according to your will. But then he goes on, he says, um, not only give us our daily bread, but uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so forgive us is first, Lord, forgive me. Speaking of what we need, not our greed, but our need. Well, my greatest need is grace. I have no greater need every single day than the incredible constant grace of Jesus Christ. His mercy is being new every morning. I wouldn't be able to stand and do anything in my life for that matter, apart from God's constant mercy and constant grace upon me, a sinner. And so he's, so the prayer is for forgiveness and the greatest needs of man are spiritual. And I think a sober-minded prayer person realizes they don't come to God as, as righteous. They come to God by the mercies of Christ. So we've been saying today, like, I lift my holy hands up. I, I love that because I'm, I'm like, Lord, they're, they're holy because it's your holiness. They're washed because of your blood. So I come before you as that sinner in need. So I need a constant supply of grace. Constant. Constant. And it has been a journey in my spiritual walk to learn that God has, for me, a constant supply of grace. I mean, it has been a long journey. It was years to learn this lesson. That I'm like, Lord, I failed again. Oh, I guess I can't talk to God for a week. That was just my spiritual immaturity. Oh, I don't know if I can really pray or worship right now because I feel like I failed. And it's like, you know what? There's that grace to help in time of need. And we come boldly to the throne to receive it. So come forward and receive it and turn to God and take in that grace. To know that no matter how deeply we feel our sin, we, uh, we feel the grace of God more. Because where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But it goes on. Not only forgive us our sins, but it says, as we forgive I think a sober-minded person in prayer doesn't come with grudges against other human beings. And this is tough. I admit it. But there's a willingness to forgive. God does not let us get away with spiritual darkness in our hearts, which is why Jesus says, because if you don't forgive them, God won't forgive you. And he ups the ante. And he basically says, if you won't forgive your fellow brother and sister, then you will not be right with me. 
I'm making their I'm ama- I'm making your relationship with them about your relationship with me. And so that I can't get away with it. I can't get away with the bitterness in my heart and it will soil and and damage my walk with the Lord Jesus if I have bitterness towards even people who deserve that bitterness. The point is, I've been forgiven. I should extend that same grace to others. I need daily grace, so do they. So prayer is serious business. We approach an almighty God, we seek his help and it's it's not about being whipped into a frenzy. I, I know I've seen that before and I'm not coming to bash people, but I'm just saying this should not be our spiritual standard where we get whipped into an emotional frenzy in prayer and that that's what's intended. If you look at the prayers in the scriptures, you don't typically see that kind of prayer. Um, some people are just very emotional. It's like good for you, but don't equate emotional with spiritual. And don't equate it with unspiritual either. It's just emotional. It just is what it is. It's fine, but it shouldn't be our standard. Our standard should be I'm going to come and, and pray to you, Lord. So the second thing we're told to be is watchful. So we're to be serious and watchful in our prayers. Watchful. When I see watchful in the Bible, I can't help but think of the concept of a watchman on a wall, which we have, like right now we have uh, Denny in the back of the room working security for us, keeping us safe from all them criminals, <laughs> the ones that aren't in the room. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and this idea of the watchman who's basically, he's constantly looking for trouble, to prevent it, you know, from happening. He's he's looking for the trouble. He's just standing on the wall. He's watching. He's like, oh, someone's sneaking across the field over there. He's like, bah, 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 the announcement or whatever it is they do. The watchman is there on the wall. His main thing is, I want to find trouble. So how can I be watchful in my prayers? Let me give you an example. When you see the news, you know, the bad news. It's on every news channel. <laughs> And you see the stuff being shared on Facebook it, it, and, and on whatever social media you're looking at or you see on your homepage, on your, uh, on your Internet Explorer or whatever you're using. And you see this bad news. Here's a thought. Something sticks out to you and jumps out to you. You're the watchman on the wall. Why don't you lift that up in prayer? Be watchful in your prayers. And take the dangers and the concerns that you see in the people around you and in the lives around you and be the watchman by lifting that up in prayer. To let prayer be your knee-jerk reaction to the uh-ohs that come as you're going through daily life. And I think that this is something that I'm learning freshly as I was studying and preparing for this message. I'm like, yeah. And so I've been just stopping. I see a new thing. I just stop and pray over that thing real quick. And, and I think that that's a beautiful thing for us to do as Christians because prayer is powerful. And we're to be serious and watchful in our prayers. And um, that's, that's very powerful. So wherever the need is, just go ahead and pray for that. Pray over people. Cover them in prayer. Cover yourself in prayer. Prayer changes minds. Um, I'm, like Jesus, how Peter was going to be tempted by Satan, who's going to be actually sifted. The term is just pretty freaky when you think about it. And Jesus tells him this. He goes, but I've prayed for you, Peter. I'm like, how powerful is that? You know, so um, verse 8, as we go back to First Peter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Above all things, up on top of everything else, have love for one another. I think that I love theology. Like I'm a huge, I love theology. I love apologetics. I like just knowing random trivia as well. I just like learning things and finding out about stuff. And I'm, I'm curious about most everything out there, except eggplant. No curiosity regarding eggplant. But most things, yes. But theology apart from love is, is it's not just that you've got theology over here and love's over here. If love isn't part of your theology, something's wrong. Like if I think of my apologetics and everything, it's all just in the head over here. But then personal character behavior of love isn't actually part of my theology. Because what's our theology is God 
is love. This is theology. So if I don't incorporate love, I've actually got a bunk theology that I need to revamp. I need to go back into it. Now, I say this because I do a lot of witnessing online. And I, I interact with a lot of other people who do witnessing online as well. And so many of them have such a, I'm, I'm just being honest, not even, I'm not saying the majority, but enough for me to mention it, have a bad, mean-spirited attitude towards others. Because in, in, in doing apologetics online, in witnessing online, you're what? You're combating ideas. And it can turn into combating people. But we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This isn't our fight. Our fight's against the spiritual issues that are going on. And so we've got to combine the theology with love, which is why, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. So it's above everything. Um, you know the scripture, you know, the Beatles took a song, made a song out of it, I think, to make up for having said some bad stuff about Jesus that one time. And, and they said, to everything, there is a season, turn, turn. You know, it's from Ecclesiastes. There's a time to kill. There's a time to... to... Oh, oh, there's the birds. Oh, sorry. I got the wrong critter. Wrong critter. Mental note to edit that out of the video for the YouTube. I don't want to be... You guys probably don't care, but I'll tell you, you offend the Beatles, man. People come to kill you. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Well, um, no, the, uh, the... What was I saying anymore? I forgot what you were talking about anymore. Oh, yes. To everything turn, there is a season turn, 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 turn. They use the word turn a lot in that song. And... It's about things having a season, but I think the point is that while there's a time to argue and a time to agree, and there's a time to kill and a time to save, and there's a time to heal, and there's a time to, I guess, get sick, and there's a time for all these different seasons in life, but above all, put on love, which means it is always time to love. Even if I'm showing judgment, even if I'm coming down on somebody, that I still flavor that with love. Love doesn't mean that I never punish or I never bring consequences, but it has to do with the way in which all that happens because love becomes like the fragrance in everything I do. You know, it's like at my house, everything's flavored with garlic. <laughs> you know, we put garlic in everything because it's good. Well, love should just be flavoring everything I have, everything I do, all of my actions and all of my attitudes. Above all, put on love, fervent love, which means intense or sincere love, not just like love, like, well, I'm trying to be loving but rather like an intensity, like I'm, I'm purposely pointing my heart in openness toward that person and that person and that person. And I'm just trying to grow in it. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to grow in this and move in this and walk the way Christ did, who so loved me, he came and he died for my sins. That this is the kind of love that should be on our, the forefront of our minds all the time. Above all, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're doing, this is our calling to love. This is Jesus's great command. And it says here that this love will cover a multitude of sins. That's quoting the Old Testament here. That love covers a multitude of sins. This is huge. Do you, have you sensed in your life as a Christian, you're entirely dependent on grace? Like you're every day, all the time, I need grace. Like I love this song. It says, I need the every hour, every hour, Lord. Because I'm like, yes. I need the every millisecond. And I just feel like I need the Lord constantly because if I don't have his constant grace, I will fall. But have you realized that other people need that exact same amount of grace? And that sometimes you're the conduit through which it flows? I need to give constant grace to others. Now, it is impossible to have a long-term relationship with anybody without them hurting you. 
except the Lord. Because they're sinners too. So I have to extend constant grace because love will cover a multitude of sins. And that's the idea. This love will be primarily expressed in just constantly forgiving a multitude of offenses they have against me. Where they hurt my feelings, or they look at me funny, or they contradict me, or they embarrass me in public, or they did this thing and it bothered me, or they disregarded me. They walked away while I was in the middle of a sentence talking to them, or whatever it is. These little things that bother us that actually feel very large. Um, and then the very large things. Love covers a multitude. It just covers a multitude. To just give constant grace the way that Jesus does. I think that we have to avoid flipping a switch in our heads. Where we And I, I see this, um, and it's a worldly thing, but it's, but it's a real thing. Where people just sort of flip a switch, and they go from friend mode to like enemy mode. And they just feel like, click, oh, well, now I'm, oh, I'll tell you what, and I'm going to rip on you, and I'm going to tear you down, and I'm going to call you names, and I'm going to backstab you, and now it's like, no hold bards, nose, no, whatever that even means, nose hold, nose holding your nose from a bard, I don't know. And then the gloves, the gloves come off, I know what that one means. <laughs> and then you're just, you're just going at it, attacking people's character, and, and I mean, have you been the target of this? I know I have. And then you hear about it because it sort of leaks back to you through the avenue of different people who are like, well, you know what they said about you six months ago. <laughs> and you're like, no, do I want to know? <laughs> Probably you don't. Um, we just have to like not ever flip the switch on anybody. And that is tough. That is tough. Um, I've you know, certainly failed in this. But this is our goal. This is our target as believers is to like not flip the switch where I just discount you. And now you're on the outside. Boop. You're outside of my circle of people. I care whether they breathe or not. That's got to include everybody. Man, that circle's got to be really big. And, um, and to not flip that switch, if, if you know what I mean. I hope that makes sense. To just not go down that road. To still look at them in, with grace. And I think we do that to protect ourselves. But in the end, we're the ones we hurt with that kind of bitterness. Because we destroy our relationships and we become isolated and we become alone. And, um, and more importantly, it glorifies Christ when we just put on love and cover a multitude of sin. And we show kindness and grace to people who don't deserve it. And they need the same daily grace that we need in our lives. And this applies probably more than anything else to the people we're closest to. Because they're the ones who will offend us the most. Or, and we'll take their offenses and we'll inflate them. Like if someone else looked at me that way, I'd be like, whatever. But you looked at me that way, and I'm like, you know, I'm flipping out about it. It's like, I can't believe you looked at me that way. Um, We tend to exaggerate the wounds of those close to us. But those are the very things that we don't need to minimize it. We just need to let let love cover the multitude of it. Just let love cover it. That's our calling. Well, um, oh, I want to get into more. Um, Let's just do this last verse, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Yeah. <laughs> be hospitable. That's the idea of sharing, you know, the what's mine is yours. That's the idea of hospitality. What's mine is yours. The extreme example of not hospitable was Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When Sodom was visited by the angels, they tried to to violate them, rape them, and, and, and wound them and hurt them. And that's the opposite of hospitality there. Um, hospitality seems to be focused on how we, how we treat strangers, actually, except that here it says hospitable to one another. Which is interesting because I find that I'm sometimes more gracious to strangers than to those I'm very close to. That a stranger comes to my house and I'm like, hey, can I get you something? Can I cook you something? Can I make you something? Can you sit in my chair? Do you want a pillow? Do you want this? Here's my cat. Pet my cat. You know, and, and I'm very kind and generous to the stranger. But then like, you know, 
you know, me and my wife sit there and look at each other, and I'm like, are you going to cook? And she's like, no, are you going to cook? And I'm like, you know. And the hospitality dissipates because because we're so close. In proximity, at least, you know. Um, So the idea is, I think, maybe here, the idea is that I show to my close friends and the the loved ones I I know more, more dearly, I show them the hospitality I would to a stranger that in the good sense. <laughs> and I think that that's actually really interesting to sort of sort of go back to that that place of just going out of your way for people for no reason than just to go out of your way for people. But then it says to do it without grumbling. Ah, the grumbling. The complaining, the whispering, the quarreling, right? With this we can undo the hospitality that we just gave. You know, people come over and you're very hospitable and you put the food out and da da da. And then when they leave, you're there cleaning up and you're like, I can't believe what mess they made. Look, there's crumbs on the couch and they messed this. Oh gosh, you know, and they didn't even call us first. Like, no warning. Yeah. And I'm hospitable, but with grumbling. Now, is that grumbling going to hurt them? It's going to hurt me. This is a character issue in me if I'm grumbling. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Not just a giver. And there are many givers that are not cheerful. Which is why God says hospitable without grumbling. Because he knows that this is an issue we have. If you can't give without complaining about those you gave to, or how much you gave to them, or how they used the thing you gave them. Because there's another one, right? Like you give somebody something and then you're like, you go to visit and you're like looking for it. Where is it? Are they using it? Is it in good shape? Are they taking good care of it? Where is it? You know. Um, if I can't give without grumbling about the, the person or the thing I gave, that's a sin issue in my own life that I should be addressing. Lord, help me to have a better attitude about this thing. Ultimately, they're accountable to you, not me. I should just let it go. I should just let it go. And there's a reward. And there's a reward for us. So I think it's kind of cool how we could start with this like verse about this deep theology question. And then we end on like, let's be nice without complaining about it. You know, <laughs> It's just kind of cool how the scripture does, does the whole gamut of everything from like the highest, deepest intellectual stuff to like the, the, the oh, just the most um, heart piercing truths to just the very practical daily stuff on how you drive down the street to how you treat your spouse and all these different things. And so um, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray this, Lord. Um, we want to apply. We want to love. So please, God, make, make known to our hearts, uh, presently known, make us aware of the areas where we could love others, to love our spouse better, to love our family better, to love our friends better, to love our church better. Lord, we pray that you would help us to bless others because we've been blessed. Show us, Lord, when we've been offended, and we w- when we will be offended this week, where we can put on grace and love to cover a multitude of sin. Help us be sober and watchful in our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>